and thus to have a mind or a soul, the world soul. This is the anima mundi. Okay, this is a very pantheistic concept. A position advanced by Plato in his Timaeus. Moreover, this cosmic mind or soul was often thought to be divine, most notably by the Stoics, and those who were influenced by them, such as the authors of the Hermetica. That's the... Yeah, that's the hermetic junk I was talking about before. Hence, it was sometimes inferred that the human mind or soul was divine in nature as well. Apart from this important psychological and noetic application, noetic means over pertaining to the mind, right? Nous is the Greek word for mind. The analogy was also applied to human psychology. No, rather, human physiology. I always do that. Human physiology. For example... The cosmological functions of the seven classical planets were sometimes taken to be analogous to the physiological functions of the human organs, such as the heart, the spleen, the liver, the stomach, etc. The view itself is ancient and may be found in many philosophical systems worldwide, such as, for example, in ancient Mesopotamia, in ancient Iran, or in ancient Chinese philosophy. However, the terms microcosm and macrocosm refer more specifically to the analogy as it was developed in the ancient Greek philosophy and its medieval or modern descendants. In contemporary usage, the terms microcosm and macrocosm are also employed to refer to any smaller system that is representative of a larger one and vice versa. So yeah, the analogy is used for you know, um, computer systems for for any sort of even employment. Like you know, this home, this little office here is a macro is a microcosm of the entire company, right? Um, so, just, again, just to give you a taste of how weird this stuff gets. Uh, and uh, I'm going to keep going in the article a little bit. Uh, among the ancient Greek and Hellenistic philosophers, of course, Hellenistic means Greek influence, right? They used the Greek language and they had Greek culture, but they weren't necessarily in Greece. Uh, notable proponents of the microcosm-macrocosm analogy included an examiner, Plato, and the Hippocratic authors in the late 4th and 5th century BCE, don't you hate that, and onwards. And the Stoics, 3rd century BCE, I'll leave off the E, and onwards. In later periods, the analogy was especially prominent in the works of those philosophers who were heavily influenced by Platonic and Stoic thought, such as Philo of Alexandria. By the way, he's the guy that we, we, we that Arius got Arianism from. <laughs> he was a, a Jewish philosopher, Hellenized Jewish philosopher, who was kind of the father of Arianism. The authors of the Greek Hermetica, already mentioned, and the Neoplatonists of the third century CE, that is to say AD, uh, onwards. The analogy was also employed in the late antique and early medieval religious literature, such as in the Bundaism, a Zoroastrian encyclopedic work. Okay, Zoroastrianism, you know, Persian fire worship, fun religion, yeah. Every temple they have the sacred fire and there's the guardian of the sacred fire there. Uh, I guess in this country they probably have to pay really high fire insurance on their temples. And they do have some temples in this country. It's the ancient religion of Persia, and they became a persecuted minority after they were taken over by Islam. But guess what? The Zoroastrians got their vengeance because that's what Shia Islam is. It's basically it's basically Islam with Zoroastrianism that, that the people couldn't get out of their system still in it. And that's why 
Shiism is so much different. One reason why Shiism is so much different than um, than the the rest of mainstream Islam, which is uh, Sunni Islam. Okay, so it's also found in Jewish rabbinical text. In the Middle Ages, you had some pretty weird characters. So they say that Aristotle did not um, hold for the microcosm; that he used it. He he was the first one to coin the term, but he didn't use it. Um, I think it's because he didn't assign any real mystical value to it. I think he understood the, um, let's just say, the anthropological and cosmological implications of it. But he didn't, um, you know, he wasn't into the fake religion. He wasn't into the pantheism that had been used with it. The the anima mundi idea that the, the idea that there's a world soul that the world is somehow all alive and all one. Um, again, that's that's pantheism. So, um, yeah, so th- then they go into, yeah, they're actually Shiite philosophers that held it. So they go into all these medieval philosophers, most of whom were not no, really no good, uh, fake religions and stuff. Uh, they do name a Catholic monk, uh, Godfrey of St. Victor, um, from the famous um, House of St. Victor in Paris, um, who who wrote a book, in his case, called uh, The Microcosmos. So he put a lot of stock in it. And so did the German Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, who was a very strange character, who uh, was one of the fathers of um, the Council of Florence, if I am not mistaken. And then in the Renaissance, it got really, really big, and you had a bunch of Italian Renaissance characters who, from what I can tell, probably lost their minds and fell for this stuff in an extremely pagan sense. And I've never seen that that their ideas were necessarily condemned, but they were very ecumenical before ecumenism, before the, you know, as I say, ante nomen. They were, they were ecumenical before the name um, because some of these guys were talking about how there's truths in all these different religions and it's the same fundamental truth. And one of them, um, uh, Pico de, de, de la Mirandola, actually talked about, you know, if you really want to find pure religious truth, you have to go back further and further through these ancient religions. And, of course, this is in like the 15th century. They had very little uh, idea of what the really ancient religions were. They, they, they were um, basing themselves upon very incomplete ideas of world history. Uh, I So anyway, I despise all that stuff. It's no good. But let's get to what the fathers of the church thought. We have a half hour left. Um, th- I came across an article, believe it or not. Fancy that, finding Catholic content on the University of Notre Dame's website. It's called uh, churchlifejournal.nd.edu. It's a subsite, I guess, of the Notre Dame website. You're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie with a little bit of a cold, which I'm getting over. So you're going to hear me, sorry, sniffling a little bit and um, drinking water every once in a while uh, to, 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 par- to quench my parched throat. Um, but uh, so we're on the show, episode number three nine three, man as microcosm, and I'm going to read from an article called Maximus the Confessor's Summation of Early Patristic Thought by a gentleman named Jean-Paul Jugue. I think it's Jugue. It's J-U-G-E. Sorry, Jean-Paul, if I've m- m- mangled your name. Nothing personal. 
So he's written a very short and I think excellent summary of one of my favorite fathers. He's a, he's a, you, you have these you have two Eastern fathers who I think were very notable for being the ones who took the Eastern fathers that came before them and summarized them well. Like they 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 read and meditated upon the works of their predecessors and they came out with what was at a fairly early point in theological development, a systematic approach to the study of, of theology. Keep in mind, patristic theology is mostly found in what? In letters, in homilies, sermons, um, commentaries on scripture. They didn't have, you know, the, the summa theologiae format. They didn't have the format of, you know, here are questions that we're going to answer here are um, here are objections, and we're going to answer those objections. They didn't have this sort of medieval disputation, right? Uh, and I'm not and I'm not making fun of them. They didn't have those. So most of what we get is in letters, commentaries on various books of scripture, or homilies, um, and you know some. And then of course there would be polemical works as well. And but many of those were found in letters. So, you know, St. Jerome or, or, or some father like that going after some heretic and versus Helvidius or, or um, the, the, the uh, attacks on, you know, uh, the, the St. Augustine's anti-Pelagian works, for instance. But again, many of those were found in letters. So uh, you had, th- those are the main sort of patristic sources. But later on, you have St. Maximus, who does more systematic kind of stuff. And then later still, you have a- another father that I'm going to quote a little bit from tonight, if I get-, get to him, if I can shut up and just get to him. And that is St. Um, John of Damascus, a.k.a. Um, Hanna Damaski, as he's called by the Arabs, uh, or John Damascene, as he's called by the Latins. Damascene just means of Damascus. So um, he was, of course, a Syrian. So l- let me read you this this article called Maximus the Confessor's Summation of Early Christian or Early Patristic Thought. Um, okay, f- the, the, it begins with a subheading, which I found a little strange. Deification is the subheading. Although Maximus the Confessor wrote in the 7th century AD, his theology, so 600s, right? His theology in many respects epitomizes and crystallizes the core movements of the early patristic thought. If I may adapt a metaphor from G.K. Chesterton, just as a spatial distance, viewing a scene from miles away can provide a fuller view of a mountain or cityscape. In a similar way, temporal distance may provide a more complete perception into the essence of an idea. It is Maximus's distance from the earlier Christian writers that enables his theology to develop the central themes of patristic theology, while at the same time chipping away from its edifice many inessential elements. Foremost among the theological themes emphasized by Maximus is the doctrine of deification, the participation of humans in God's nature via grace. Building off of his predecessors, such as Origen, Athanasius, and Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus envisions deification as the telos, that would be end, right? Or it's where we get tail from. It's the Greek where we get tail from. Uh, not only of mankind, it also means purpose, right? Not only of mankind, but also indirectly of the entire cosmos. Okay, so you see where we're getting the microcosm here. 
In the Ambigua, this is one of his writings, in the Ambigua, Maximus associates human deification with the successful integration and offering of all creation, its metaphysical polarities notwithstanding, to the Creator. Yet, due to the human condition after original sin, the only avenue for deification is the one paved by Christ, the God-man, who offers all of creation back to the Father through his sacrifice on the cross. In his mystagogy, that's another work of um, St. Maximus the Confessor, Maximus identifies the Mass, the Holy Liturgy of the Church, with Christ's perfect prayer to the Father, and therefore also with the locus of human deification. Locus, of course, being the Latin word for place. This is the place where human deification happens, in which God's union with mankind, and consequently, creation as a whole, is realized. So he hasn't used the word microcosm yet, but when he says man, and then consequently creation as a whole, there's the microcosm-macrocosm analogy.